0: I'm Emily. And I'm Alicia. And And we're we're dead dead on. on. This podcast we discuss topics that are considered harmful and disturbing. If you are sensitive to talk involving rape, violence, abuse, morbidity or murder, please opt out of listening. Hey fam, it's your girl Alicia. This week it's a solo show as M is taking a break. I need to shout out Cheryl whose handle is MotoXmom727 on Instagram. I asked for K suggestions last Friday and you legends came through with the goods. So many cases I've never heard of, and now I've got weeks of material to dig through. So thank you so much for hooking me up. And keep your ears peeled for your shout-out, I'm going to cover all the case suggestions I received over the coming weeks. There's a reason I picked this case first, though. I read one single paragraph of one single article and was completely fired up and honestly pissed off. Immediate and unshakable connection to this case. I think you'll feel it, too. Joyce Lynn Feigl was born in Bemidji, Minnesota on January 3, 1946. A Capricorn. For those of you who don't know, caps are hard workers who strive to achieve the best for themselves and their families, which describes our girl Joyce down to the ground. At just 15, Joyce fell pregnant with her first child, Kim. She'd been dating Mel Roberts for nearly a year at this point, but as they were so young, this baby was very much unplanned. Her devout mother was adamant that Joyce would send the child off to a Lutheran children's home for adoption. But Joyce and Mel made other plans, instead deciding to get married and start a family of their own. Unfortunately, both had to drop out of school, Joyce to be a stay-at-home mother and Mel to become the provider. This limited Mel's options in terms of employment, so he immediately began going door-to-door at businesses to look for work. Finally, Mel turned up at a metal stamping company and was invited into the owner's office. Empathizing with the young father, he told Mel that his very first shift began that very day. Joyce fell pregnant with their second child, Greg, one year later. Despite these wins falling into place, life wasn't easy for the family. As Joyce hadn't finished high school, the highest-paying job she could secure was waitressing. Even with two incomes, the couple was under financial duress. Joyce felt unfulfilled in her life, and she decided that she wanted more. So she filed for divorce from Mel and moved to Ogden, Utah, with her children. Bit of an episode crossover moment, Ogden is where the hi-fi shop murders occurred. As Joyce's sister, Dorothy, lived in Ogden it would be easier for Joyce to put down roots when she already had an existing support system. Like I said, Joyce was a typical Capricorn hustler. She secured a job at a cosmetics counter and a local department store, and she completely looked the part. Joyce was a head-turner. Her short, wavy, platinum blonde hair would catch your eye. Her statuesque figure and impeccable sense of style would hold your gaze. Then her delicate, stunning features would really win. And you know who she reminds me of? Mia Farrow. So much alike. But life wasn't smooth sailing for the single mother. She was making the most of it, though. Ensuring her children wanted for nothing, she took another job as a cocktail waitress. She'd be out working until 1 a.m., only to go home and straight to bed so she could get up and begin her long day all over again. Marrying for a second time, she became Mrs. Joyce Yost. Unfortunately, the marriage ended after just three years. Fret not for Joyce though, she was absolutely living it up. By 1985, Joyce was footloose and fancy free. At 39 years old, she was beautiful and the life of the party. Her children had flourished into adulthood. Greg was off to dental school, studying hard to achieve his dreams. And Kim was married and had children of her own making Joyce a very proud grandmother. She had built a self-actualized life for herself, and it was truly glorious to behold. On Wednesday, April 3rd, 1985, Joyce hopped in her big boat of a convertible and headed to the city of Clearfield to meet a gentleman friend. At about 7pm, she arrived at a supper club called the Pier 3. The pair spent the next three hours having dinner, enjoying one another's company, and even cutting loose on the dance floor a few times. At about 10.15pm, the pair departed the Pier 3 and ever the gentleman. Joyce's companion walked her to her car. They shared a bit of a cheeky kiss, then Joyce bon voyaged into the night. Little did she know that the red Mazda RX-7 following behind her was hot on her tail. Behind the wheel of the Red Mazda was a man named Doug Lovell. So who was this creep? Doug Lovell was bad news from the very start. He was routinely in trouble at school. Dispute resolution was conducted mainly by Fist, landing him in many after-school punch-ups. When they weren't swinging into faces, his sticky fingers found their way onto many things that didn't belong to him. By the age of 15, he'd racked up charges of theft and burglary and landed himself in juvenile court, just days before his parents' divorce was finalized. By the sounds of it, he took the divorce pretty hard, even lamenting about how difficult it was to choose between his parents when faced with the question. That being said, many of us find ourselves in the exact same situation and manage to be functioning adults who don't commit crimes. Unfortunately, the trauma didn't end there for Doug. When Doug was 19, his brother was found unresponsive and the death was ruled an accidental overdose. This was a devastating blow for the already spiraling out of control Doug. True to form, his behavior tanked even further. Doing his best to get his son back on the straight and narrow, Doug's father demanded that he stop committing crimes. As you can probably imagine, that plea fell on deaf ears. Bound and determined to ignore his dad's sound advice, Doug found himself a few hardened criminals to hang out with. They put their conniving heads together and decided to knock over a grocery store. Doug was arrested for his role as the getaway driver. Surprisingly, he didn't snitch on anyone else involved, so he alone was the fall guy. Apparently, the prosecutor wasn't here for any, I was only the getaway driver, excuses, So Doug received a first-degree felony robbery charge. Believe it or not, Doug was assigned the very same public defender who represented one of the hi-fi shop murderers, a big burly bear of a lawyer named John Kane. While Kane cut a commanding presence in the courtroom, the eight jurors still found Doug guilty. In lieu of a prison sentence, Doug was enrolled in a course called the Public Offenders Program at Utah State Hospital, This inpatient treatment was designed to rehabilitate offenders struggling with mental health problems. And honestly, this all sounds a bit forward-thinking for its time, don't you think? That being said, the gods themselves must smile down upon this wretched man-child. Despite being gifted this saving grace, the public offenders program had a zero rehabilitative effect. Doug would go on to squander this and all the rest of his seemingly endless chances. Sadly, one of these chances would prove to be a fatal flaw in the system. Okay, I think I've sufficiently described Doug's character, or more accurately, lack thereof. So why was he being a total creep and tailing Joyce? No surprises here, Doug wasn't simply making sure she got home okay. None the wiser to Doug or his nefarious plans, Joyce pulled into the carport outside of her home. Before she knew it, the little red Mazda pulled up behind her and blocked her in. Doug stepped out of the Mazda, opened Joyce's driver's side door, then wedged himself between Joyce and her exit. Seriously, get a load of the situation. It's late in the evening and Joyce probably felt the comfort of her bed beckoning. Instead of hurrying off to dreamland, this complete stranger rocks up, totally uninvited and unwanted, and menaces you for god knows what reason. You know who he looks like? A great value Frank Gallagher from Shameless. Seriously, go check it out for yourself. I posted photos of him on our socials and website. He has this big walrus mustache and like the feathered hair that was pretty popular in the 80s. Totally ridiculous. But listen to this bullshit he spins, right? His opening line to Joyce was, I quote, I can't believe I'm doing this. Neither can we, mate. And we wish you'd hop back in your Mazda and fuck off into the sun. But that's never how these stories go, is it? He went on to say that he spotted Joyce at the supper club and he was immediately attracted to her. Instead of being a normal human being and introducing himself at the club, he decided to follow her home. A total stranger who now knows where she lives approached her in complete darkness. A hideous, obtrusive state of affairs. Doug invited Joyce out for a drink, which she naturally declined. Refusing to quit while he's behind, he continued to pester Joyce. Because women are conditioned to be polite, even while under duress from unrelenting, unwanted reprobates, Joyce attempted to placate Doug by suggesting going for a coffee instead. Now, I've mentioned that Doug is an overgrown man-child. Do you think he's going to acquiesce to anything other than his own desires or demands? Nope. Of course not. The longer Doug blocked Joyce's pathway to safety, the more concerned and fearful she became. Joyce attempted a few genius maneuvers in an attempt to humanize herself to this strange man. First, she asked his name. Doug lied through his teeth and said that his name was Dave. Real, original, mate. Then, Joyce changed tack and attempted to take on a maternal role, telling Doug that she was old enough to be his mother. This didn't seem to faze Doug, who told her that he's 27 and her age didn't bother him. Still, he staunchly refused to budge. I already hate this guy, and of course, it gets worse. Suddenly, he grabbed Joyce by the neck with one hand, choking her. He squeezed her trachea until no sound could escape her lips. Doug told her that if she screamed or said anything, he'd tear her throat open. If I could cover this man in worms and feed him to the geese, I would. Using the full weight of his body, Doug bent forward and crushed Joyce down flat across her front seat. Realizing this brute's horrifying intentions, Joyce struggled against her attacker in the fight of her life. Adrenaline coursing through her veins, she furiously kicked at her attacker, sending her shoes flying from her feet. A small blessing? Joyce wore acrylic fingernails, which she used to gouge and scratch the knockoff Frank Gallagher. Throughout the fight, Joyce's nails were split and torn from her nail beds. Joyce fought like a hellcat, but her slight, elegant stature got her nowhere. Still refusing to give up, she attempted to win Doug over with her words. She told him she was pregnant and that her husband was inside the home, awaiting her return. Doug demanded that Joyce come with him to his home. Joyce realized that going to a secondary location with a total stranger would likely be a fatal mistake, so she declined. Ugh, I hate this part. So Doug says, Do you want it right here? Excuse me while I hold back vomit. It was at this point Joyce felt she had no other option. Between the choices of life altering and life ending, she made the incredibly brave choice of the former. I can't bring myself to describe what happened next. And you likely don't want to hear it, and frankly good. I'm glad we're in agreement. After the disgusting, despicable degradation was over, Doug had the hide to continue to demand that Joyce accompany him to his place. Seriously, if I had access to a time machine, I'd go back in time and I'd find myself a T-Rex. Together we'd travel to 1985... Then I'd let loose that tiny arm behemoth on the sorry excuse for a humanoid. <sighs> <sighs> sorry. I'm angry. Sensing she wasn't out of harm's way yet, Joyce silently moved her hands across the car seat, desperately searching for anything to defend herself. Finally, her finger encircled around something jagged and metal. Her keys. Glaring at the shadowy outline of her attacker, she struck. "'driving her keys towards what she thought was the man's eyeball. "'Unfortunately, he sensed her movement and recoiled backwards. "'So the key jabbed into the crevice where his nose met his face. "'I hope it hurt like hell, you filthy grub.' "'Blood erupting from the wound, Doug angrily shook Joyce, "'telling her that he had a gun so she had better behave. "'Joyce sensed her next opportunity when Doug attempted to pull up his pants.' She slammed into her car's horn in a desperate attempt to get help. Unfortunately, that help never arrived. No one emerged from the other units in the complex. Doug grabbed her by the throat yet again. This time, he yanked her out of the car, threw her to the ground, and began dragging her towards his own car. Then, he violently shoved her into the passenger seat and held her down. He reminded Joyce that he had a gun and he wouldn't hesitate to use it. Memories of Joyce's family flashed through her terrified mind. She thought of her children, Kim and Greg, and her beautiful grandchildren. She began to fear that she would never see any of them again. Joyce's attention focused on a metallic clicking sound and she thought that Doug might be loading a gun. The Mazda's engine roared to life, drawing Joyce away from the safety of her home. Dread filled and then consumed her. Fearing for her life, Joyce didn't dare move a muscle. After what felt like an eternity, Doug parked the Mazda, got out of the car, and then opened the rear hatch. Before she realized what was happening, Doug covered her face with something that felt silky and cool against the throbbing bruises and bumps forming on her beautiful face. Doug forced her out of the car and marched her into the unknown. Sensing she was being forced to enter a home, she ambled along in the dark until Doug threw her onto his bed. To make matters even more hideous, it was a waterbed. Is that not the grossest? Sloshing onto a filthy mongrel's nasty waterbed? I legitimately cannot think of anything more revolting than that. Thinking fast and hoping to buy herself some time, Joyce asked for a glass of water. Naturally, the scumbag was reticent to provide even the most basic decency, but eventually relented. Before he went, he lit a cigarette and handed it to her. As he trudged off to fetch the water, gears began to turn in Joyce's mind. Her efforts to fight hadn't worked, nor had her pleaded appeals had any effect on his non-existent humanity. It was time to negotiate. Joyce recalled, quote, When he came back with the drink of water, we sat and we had a couple cigarettes. I felt as though I was maybe talking him out of it. I said, look, you know... If you have a problem, if there's something bothering you, or if there's anything I can do to help you, please, let's talk about it. Trying to foster some trust, she told him that she wouldn't hurt him if he didn't hurt her. Unfortunately, none of these brave tactics worked. Doug demanded that she undress. Again? I don't want to detail the particulars. Everything I've told you is horrifying enough as it is. My intention here isn't to traumatize you, myself, or Joyce's dignity any further. The reason I'm sharing so much of her story is this. While it's sickeningly and heart-wrenchingly depraved, Joyce's attack isn't unique. Far from it. While I can't control the actions of thousands of rapists, I can share the heroic stories of survivors. Together, we can empathize with what they've gone through, Stand with them, and hopefully even learn what we can do to prevent these degenerates from reoffending. <sighs> Once Doug was finished, he asked Joyce if she wanted to go home. Strangely, a wave of remorse washed over Doug. In a rare flash of something resembling decency, he asked Joyce how she was feeling, and she responded honestly, saying she felt really unwell. The final indignity, her clothing was too damaged and torn to cover her. She had to ask Doug for some clothes to wear home. As they exited the home, Doug didn't bother to blindfold Joyce again. She was able to freely look around, cataloging details and storing them away in her memory. As they climbed into the Mazda, she filed away details about the car, and as they sped towards her home, she dropped mental pins at the landmarks that they passed. You're not going to believe this shit, though. As Doug drove, he grew quiet and contemplative. Out of nowhere, he said to Joyce, quote, I'm really a nice person. I don't normally do things like this. Not only that, but he told her that he was the type of guy who sent women flowers. Really? You stalked, assaulted, raped, and abducted a woman. But you're a nice guy? If that doesn't sum up the proverbial nice guy culture, I don't know what will. I'm a nice guy, bitch! Sending flowers doesn't erase the fact that you're a rapist piece of shit, Doug. Please fling yourself into the nearest black hole. When Doug finally pulled up outside of Joyce's home, relief flooded her battered, exhausted body. Freedom was so close, she could taste it. Finally, she entered her apartment, heard the door thud, and secured the lock behind her. (sighs) At last, her ordeal was over. The sense of relief she had felt was replaced with soul-crushing devastation. Her entire life as she knew it was forever changed. At about 1am, Joyce called her sister, Dorothy. Hysterically sobbing, she told Dorothy what happened. Immediately, Dorothy told Joyce to call the police. Initially, Joyce was hesitant to file a report. Fearing for her life, she explained that her attacker knew where she lived, and she faced the petrifying challenge that so many other victims of rape must endure. If she called the police, she would have to relive the pain and humiliation in front of total strangers. The more details that Joyce shared with her sister, the more outraged Dorothy became. Finally, she'd heard enough. Dorothy told Joyce that if she didn't call the cops, Dorothy would do it herself. Well. That must have lit a fire under Joyce, because she decided to do just that. At 1.58 a.m., Joyce called the police and reported the crime. First to arrive at her door was Officer Rob Carpenter, followed by Officer Mel Hackworth. The pair fired up a small recorder to capture Joyce's statement, outlining every revolting detail of the crime. Fearing that Doug would attack someone else, Joyce did everything in her power to assist the police in their investigation. First, she helped them collect as much evidence as possible. Then she escorted them outside and walked them through the initial attack. Finally, at 2.33 a.m., she got in the squad car and directed them towards Doug's home. As they drove, Joyce continued to share her story with the officers, recalling, quote, I made up my mind at that point. I was going to cooperate with everything because the only thing worse than being sexually abused was to die. Give this woman a Purple Heart, a Congressional Medal of Honor, a fucking Nobel Peace Prize. After what seemed like an eternity driving around in the cruiser, Joyce finally spotted Doug's home. I'll be goddamned, she breathed a sigh of relief. Once they'd identified the resident and confirmed registration details of the monster's owner, they brought Joyce to the hospital for one final invasive procedure, the rape kit. To their credit, Officers Carpenter and Hackworth conducted an excellent investigation, but more importantly, they treated Joyce with dignity and respect when she needed it the most. I hate that I'm shocked by this basic decency, but the fact of the matter is, victims of rape are doubted and silenced, even today. I sincerely doubt that any rapists are listening to me right now, but on the off chance that you are. You are not entitled to anyone's body. Fellow human beings are not vending machines that you can put either niceness or violence tokens into until sex falls out. If it's not an enthusiastic yes, it's a fucking no. You're an adult, not an entitled, petulant child. No one, not a soul, owes you sex. Fucking figure it out. And for the rest of us, there's a reason why an overwhelming majority of rape victims never call the cops. For one, imagine reliving the horror of the worst experience of your entire life in excruciating detail with complete strangers. Then, imagine how it would feel if no one believed you. Worse still, you could be ostracized by your community simply by retelling your story. And finally, picture sitting in the courtroom and watching your rapist walk free, knowing that they could do it again, and fearing that they might even come for you. If we want to encourage victims of rape to come forward, we need to provide a safe and supportive environment. If we want rapists to have their day in court, we need to trust and believe victims. There's a high-profile rape case in the Aussie media right now, and I'm shocked ashamed, and disgusted by much of the public's reaction to the verdict. The perpetrator of this crime is a revered athlete, so many fans of his are currently suggesting that his victim deserved it. She invited him to her home. What did she expect? For one, no one expects to be raped. We all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. It doesn't matter if you're passed out drunk, totally naked, in the middle of nowhere. No one should be laying a fucking finger on you unless they're checking for a pulse to make sure you're safe, healthy, and okay. To survivors of sexual violence, you weren't asking for it. I don't give a shit what anyone says. I don't care what you were doing, wearing, or saying at the time. I don't care if it was getting hot and heavy and then suddenly you had a change of heart. Every single one of us has the right to withdraw consent at any time and for any reason. What kind of mongrel wants to have sex with someone who doesn't want to have sex with them? A rapist. If you have to coerce someone, if you have to beg for it, if you have to plead, it doesn't matter. It's wrong and you shouldn't be doing it. And you're a rapist. Sorry? Not sorry. For these reasons, and so many more to come, Joyce's story made a place in my heart. I wish I could say that this is the end of the road, that Joyce would see justice done and live a full and beautiful life. But unfortunately, as I always say, it gets worse. And in this case, it won't get any more dark than this. Next week, I'll conclude Joyce Yost's unbelievable gripping trials and where the case stands today. Can you do me a huge solid? Would you tell a few friends about Dead On this week? Research, production, and marketing takes far more time than I care to admit. This pod is a labor of love, and frankly, this needy baby is lucky that I love it. But you can help us grow by sharing us with your mates. Okay, that's enough from me don't follow people home, don't be creepy, and like Doug's dad said, stop committing crimes. Okay, bye.